Well, like I mentioned to the children, we just got back in town last night from a family beach trip. And when I say family, I mean like family reunion style beach trip. 17 people in one house with eight adults, nine kids, ages 12, 12, 10, 9, 7, 6, 3, 2, 1. Let me say that again. Uh, nine kids, 12, 12, 10, 9, 7, 6, 3, 2, 1. Uh, now that's a lot of action happening under one roof uh, for uh, a week, but we all survived it. It was great to be with uh, my sister, Kari. She lives in Oklahoma City. We don't get to see her and her four children, my brother-in-law very often. Um, but flying back, I was thinking about a few things that kind of occurred to me during the week, and I thought I'd share these with you off the bat. And this is about family, um, family life in general. The first one is this. If you have a sibling or a family member that you don't get to see very often, maybe because they live uh, out of town or because uh, you just don't get to see them very much, make plans to see them. Invite them to Nashville, go visit them, um, meet them somewhere. Because I think sometimes we, we push that off in life saying, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, and then we never get to it. And I think it's good to spend time with all of our family members. The second thought that I have is that if you have extended family here in Nashville, don't take that for granted. Um, my sister is always telling me how she wishes that they could be here in Nashville so that all the cousins could be together and we could have family dinners more often like we did this week. But she lives in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is 11 hours away. We don't get to see her very often. So if you have family in Nashville, don't, don't take that for granted. Take advantage of that. And the last thought that I had on the, on the flight back last night was, you know, all families go through trials and tribulations over the years. Uh, our family certainly has, and there's no perfect family. You've heard me say that many times uh, in sermons, but family, and that also includes the church family, is the greatest source of support when we go through difficult times, and we must never forget that. We have to make family a priority because our families are there to support us when we go through difficult times, and I've talked to many people over the years as, as a, a pastor who wish that they could have done or said something to a family member and then suddenly that family member passes away and then it's too late. And so um, I guess what I'm saying is, is don't left, leave things left unsaid. Don't, don't say, oh, we'll, we'll get together in a couple of years because you just never know when you can do that and when you can. We're in a summer sermon series that's titled Why Our World Needs Jesus uh, because I believe it's very important that as Christians, we must be able to identify and articulate the many answers to this question. And there are lots of answers to this question. Theologian Harvey Cox taught a class at Harvard for many years. It was called Jesus in the Moral Life. And then later it was published into a book that was titled When Jesus Came to Harvard. And the book talks about, you know, what, what was accomplished in that class. And the class became so popular that they had to move it out of a classroom and into a large auditorium just to accommodate all the different people at Harvard that wanted to take this class. And so in referring to some of the scholarship that had been done on the historical Jesus project, Cox says this, some depicted him as a wandering sage, others as a charismatic preacher, and still others as a religiously inspired social revolutionary. But Cox noted that when a group of historians and academics set out to identify exactly who Jesus was, there was a lot of disagreement and some ambiguity. There were many questions. And of course, 
we still find that today. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we would say Jesus is our Lord and Savior. For others, he was a great uh, teacher or rabbi. For others, he was a healer. For others, he was a, a revolutionary prophet. For others, a moral exemplar who had deep wisdom and insight. But the purpose of this course at Harvard was to identify how the life and teachings of Jesus could help the students make better moral choices today, regardless of whether they were Christians or not. According to Cox, Jesus obviously provided a powerful example of someone who took the side of the dispossessed, who spoke truth to power, and was willing to pay the price of his convictions. Now, one of the questions that I have asked our staff and lay leaders over the years, and I've asked you in sermons before, is what do you see right now as being the biggest challenge or challenges facing us as a society, as a culture right now? And, and whenever you ask the question, I'd encourage you to write a couple things down on your bulletin. What do you see as being the biggest challenge that our world and our culture faces? When you ask the question, you get lots of answers. Um, you get a whole lot of answers. And so over the years, people have said, well, it's broken relationships. That's the biggest challenge. There's a lot of pain and hurt and loss and grief. And people have been betrayed and scarred. And it makes it hard for them to love and, and trust again. Families have been torn apart. And often they don't reconcile. Divorce and, and broken homes can be devastating. Some will respond to the question by saying that it's anger and hostility that's the problem. Everybody's angry about something and they're carrying that on their shoulders, whatever it might be. And so many people just seem mad and they're ready to, to explode or, or go off on somebody at any given moment. Some will say, well, poverty is a big problem, right? Far too many people who don't have the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, medical care. It's why we have the mission opportunities at this church that we have. There are so many people who are born into poverty in the world and they never have a chance to get out. And we can certainly talk about how the best address it, but there are millions of children out there who did not choose the situation into which they were born. And many of those children never get a fair shot in life. One of the great solutions to poverty is education, right? Access to education, funding education, and I know there are many people in this church that are dedicated, they've given their life's work to public education and private school education, and they're passionate about this, but we can't seem to agree as a culture on how to best fix and improve public education. Some say that, that Christian nationalism has become a problem in our world. Uh, people get confused, they start worshiping nation and political figures over God. Some will say that greed and selfishness is a problem, uh, that folks are only looking out for themselves. Some will say that materialism is a problem. We have too much stuff and it runs our lives. Uh, and, and you can't make a list like this without saying that fear and anxiety continues to be a problem. That pervades our culture. People are afraid of so many things and they worry about so many things. They can't seem to enjoy the present moment or the situation that they're in. And so they're restless and they're anxious and, and we can certainly point to, to our, our smartphones and to technology and say that this is a big part of the problem in our culture, keeps us always distracted and occupied. So we can acknowledge all of these challenges, 
But the question is, what is the prescription for dealing with these challenges? How can we make this world a better place? How can we make life better for other people? Where is the one place that we can turn to help deal with all of this? And this is where I believe the teachings of Jesus never fail us. After his time in the wilderness and his temptations, we see Jesus starting his Galilean ministry and he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers, Peter and Andrew, casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. That was their trade, their job, their career, their livelihood. And Matthew tells us that Jesus walks up to them and says, come, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately the text says they left their nets and they followed him. And then as he went along, he saw James and John mending their nets. They too left what they were doing and they followed Jesus. And the journey that they started that day changed their lives and it changed our world forever. You know, just by our mere presence in church this July Sunday morning, it would appear that we've all made the same decision as those disciples to follow Jesus. But I would also say that for many of us, we are not always certain of what that actually means for our lives. We, we find ourselves in situations where we wonder, what, what would Jesus want us to do here? Uh, how would he want us to act or to behave? What would he want us to say? And so I think it's very important that we constantly ask and answer the question, why do we follow Jesus? And what difference is he making in our lives and in our hearts? Are we Christians just because that's what good people do in Nashville? Be a Christian, have a church. Is it because... That's how our parents brought us up and we were always told that it's important. Is it because we feel guilty if we don't follow him? Is it because we want to go to heaven one day when we die? Or do we actually have specific concrete answers to this very important question? Why does our world need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? Like many of you, I was born and raised in the church. I was born into a family of, of ministers. Uh, I'm a fourth generation, great-grandfather, grandfather, father. So being a Christian was never really a choice for me. Uh, I just kind of did what I was told. And going to church was never really a choice for me either, by the way. Um, but as I grew up, it became clear that I had to answer the question for myself. Why am I following Jesus? Why do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior, as we say in worship every Sunday? Uh, what does that mean? That's the question that we have to keep wrestling with. That's the question that we must wrestle with really our entire journey of faith. And in an age where spirituality now seems more preferable to many people than organized religion, it's an important question to ask because our relationship with Jesus should transform us on a regular basis and help us to grow each and every day. It must challenge us. It must inspire us. It must give us energy and hope and peace and purpose. It must also help us when it comes to making moral decisions in life. It doesn't mean we're perfect and we always get it right. It doesn't mean we don't ever screw up. We know we do. 
But, but as Jonathan Sachs says at the beginning of his book, Morality, the market will be merciless, politics will be deceiving, divisive, confrontational, and extreme. People will feel anxious and uncertain and fearful and aggressive and unstable and unrooted and unloved. They will focus on promoting themselves instead of the one thing that will give them lasting happiness, which is making life better for others. Following Jesus helps us live a moral life which always involves making life better for others. Now, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God because that's who he said he was, but I also believe it because he offers a prescription and an answer for just about every single issue that we face in our lives. You know, it's appropriate, Matthew's Gospel, that right after Jesus calls his first disciples, and he makes a decision, they drop, their, they drop their nets, make the decision to follow him. What do we find in Matthew? We find the Sermon on the Mount, right? Five, six, and seven. Uh, probably the most uh, profound and rich passage of scripture in the entire Bible, the heart of Christianity, the core of Christianity. This is Jesus's core teachings and it's worth intense study and reflection on our part. This is where I think Bible study should begin. I mean, if you're going to start somewhere, why not start here? Um, if you're not going to read anything else in the Bible, why not read these chapters? Think about this. We live in a time where the arrogant and the popular seem to get all the attention. The loudest and the most aggressive people seem to get ahead and get their way. But what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. In a time where every single one of us suffers loss and grief on some level, some suffer it far greater than others, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to cry. In a world where people are often dishonest and manipulative, passive-aggressive, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In a time of conflict and war, the war in Ukraine continues on. Hostility, division, there's fear and a need to control other people. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? In a world where we can forget who we are and what matters most in life, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In a time where we get angry about many different things, and it's different for all of us, sometimes that anger will come out at the wrong time and in the wrong place and towards the wrong person, towards the people that we love the most. Jesus says, if you're angry towards a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. Go and resolve your problem with your brother or sister and then come to the altar and offer your gift. In a world where sex sells and adultery is far too common, it rips families apart. Many people don't think twice about it. Jesus says, watch your thoughts. Whoever looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, be careful what you think about because what you think about, you just might act upon. In a time where we don't just get mad, we find ourselves wanting to get even with other people. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give your cloak as well. You don't have to fight back. In a culture where we are so obsessed with accumulating wealth and status and possessions and we're always checking the market and looking at them as our main source of security in life, what does he say? He says, 
Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. No one can serve two masters. You can either serve God or wealth, but you can't serve them both. In a time where we spend so much of our emotional energy worrying about so many things, or as Mark Twain said, I worried about a lot of things, very few of them, whichever came to pass. We worry about our health, our reputation, our job, our security, our children, our grandchildren, our marriage, death itself. He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your your body, what you will wear. Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? In other words, live your life one day at a time. That's all you have. In an age of judgment, we judge people based on their politics. Are they liberal? Are they conservative? Are they part of the problem? Are they part of the solution? We'll say Uh, their skin color, their class, their their gender, their age, their their marital status, their reputation, uh, their wealth. Are they connected? Jesus says, don't judge so that you may not be judged. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you fail to recognize the log in your own eye? First, take this out. Then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Jesus says, in everything do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So simple yet so hard. In a world where many people claim to be Christians, but they don't actually live out their faith. He says, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he concludes all of this, all of this by saying, if you hear these words of mine and you act on them, it's like a wise man who built his house on rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it was founded and built on rock. But if you build your house on shifting sand with different values, with the wrong kind of friendships, the wrong kind of priorities, then when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow, it'll knock it down. And great will that crash be. All of this is why we need Jesus. It's why our world needs Jesus. It's why we follow Jesus. It's why he's our Lord and our savior. The challenges that we face, the problems that we encounter, just about every single one of them could be solved if we listened to this man from Nazareth. He says, be doers of the word and not just hearers. You guys remember Lee Camp. He came last summer and preached here. He's a professor at Lipscomb. He's written a couple of books. One of them is called Mere Discipleship. And I love what Lee says in this book. He says, Jesus of Nazareth always comes asking disciples to follow him Not merely to accept him, not merely to believe in him, not merely to worship him, but to follow him. And one either follows Christ or one does not. There's no compartmentalization of the faith, no realm, no sphere, no business, no politic in which the lordship of Christ will be excluded. We either make him Lord of all lords or we deny him as Lord of any. Jesus says, come and follow me. But he says, if you do, and if you listen, then get ready, because this will change your life. Amen.